everyone. Welcome back to Hair with a Werewolf. I'm Lily, and I have with me Chase. What's up? We are a horror paranormal podcast that like telling each other true scary stories from all over the world. And that is my intro. I have not <laughs> done an intro in quite a while, so I forgot what else to say. Well, I'm super curious what you're actually drinking. I'm on water. Oh, yes. I'm, being, I'm being a responsible adult tonight, but... Uh... Oh, yeah. I'm drinking... So it's cherry Coke from when we went to Golden Pride to get food and plus vodka. So not very fancy. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. I don't know why I had to be so specific. For but... a second, it was the same color as some herbal tea I made today, like ice oh. herbal tea. And I was like, oh my God, she's drinking my tea. She never <laughs> drinks my tea. And I'm like, no, she still isn't drinking my tea. No, it's just some nasty cherry Coke. <laughs> why would I drink tea? There's no liquor in that. <laughs> All right. Well, it's the month of January, obviously. And what I found out is apparently the full moon is often called the wolf moon during January. Oh, yeah. And uh, when it becomes full, and that was on January 25th, which depending on when you're listening to this is like four or five days ago or weeks ago. But they said it has to do with an increase in wolf activity during January. We don't really hang out around wolves, so I'm not <laughs> quite sure we would notice this. But I felt it was appropriate to mention it because we're the Hair of the Werewolf podcast and wolf moon. That seems pretty cool. And appropriate. It's, Way cooler sounding than the worm moon, which is what March is called because of earthworms. Oh. I think worm moon sounds really gross because a lot of times when I hear moon, I think about like people like mooning you. And then when you put worms in that whole situation, it's really gross. <laughs> I was thinking of wormholes and like space and you're just like, anyway, buttholes. <laughs> That's because you have a healthy brain. And I am a bad, awful person. You're still a 12 year old little boy inside, aren't you? Yeah, so we both have good stories today. Well, I hope yours is good. I know mine is great. Yeah, I was like, how do you know? No, mine's crap. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's amazing, guys. <laughs> hey, listeners, be ready. Be ready. I guess just like a quick update on our lives. It's been a while since we recorded. Let's see. The most notable events we've done is that we went to our local Comic-Con. That was pretty fun. So celebrities that I never thought yeah, I would see. Yeah, Albuquerque Comic-Con. We went to an emo night. Mm-mm-mm. Like... Downtown, which was kind of disappointing. It was just a kind of a DJ. You're being so generous. Kind of disappointing is awful. It was <laughs> terrible. We were under the impression it was going to be like a cover band or a couple cover bands and maybe a DJ at some point playing a bunch of like emo music that we liked from the past and just hanging out. It was just a DJ. Mm-hmm. And it was weird to go to a concert venue and there's a DJ up there, but he's not like... He's not mixing. He's not like doing any crazy DJ stuff. He's literally playing a song. A playlist. And then he's dancing around the stage. And it's like we're supposed to watch a guy next to a computer and we're all there in front of the stage. And it just felt like awful. I was like, I could could just listen to this music in my car and then I could be wherever I want to be. Yeah. And so I think that was awful. Comic-Con, though, that was fantastic. That was fun. I mean, who, who? any celebrities you saw that... Um, I, I don't remember his name because now I feel terrible, but it's Skinner who played on X-Files. Oh, who played X Skinner on X-Files. Yeah. That I was like, oh my God, I have no idea why that freaked me out. I didn't, I didn't catch him. I, I missed someone like, so Famka Jans was supposed to be there. I didn't see her. Oh, I didn't see her either. From a distance, I saw Bam Margera and I was shocked at how <laughs> massive his face is. <laughs> it was so weird to I was see like, him. Such a huge head on a normal body. Yeah. Edward James almost was there with his majestic that mustache. was cool i barely got to see him like there was too many people in the way so i kind of saw him but kind of not yeah and there were a bunch of other people uh my buddy mikey got an autograph from the voice of Gur from invader zim he's pretty excited about that mm. it was cool it was cool 
But yeah, fun stuff. I actually bought comic books. God forbid at a Comic-Con someone actually goes for comic books. That's <laughs> Which there me. weren't that many booths to. No, there were barely any comics uh, there. They need to change the name if it's not actually about comic it's books. It's just like Fun Media Con. Like Geek Con. Yeah. Okay, so I think I'm ready. I just took a sip of my delicious drink. So my story for today is called the Yarama Yahoo. So this story is a little weird. It's about a little creature known as the Yarama Yahoo that inhabits the Australian Pacific Coast. Australian Pacific Coast. So Yarma. So it's Australia, the mainland, but it's on the Pacific Coast side. So right if you're looking at it on a map. That's where most of the big cities are, you know. They're all on the yeah. east coast of of Australia. So Yarma Yahoo, two words, or is it like a really long word? It's with just a, pause? a long word. Yarma Yahoo. Yarma Yahoo. So I'm just going to jump into the little story. It's a really popular one. A man tired from hunting fell asleep under a tree. Without a sound, a Yarma Yahoo leapt onto his face and sucked his blood through its fingers and toes. Okay, so I'm already trying to picture something. I don't even know how big this is. I know. I'll get into that. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so. So anyways, just imagine a creature jumping on you while you're sleeping and is starting to suck your blood through its like tiny appendages. So it's a chupacabra. Almost. Afterwards, it proceeds to swallow the man whole. The hunter's mother saw what happened and went to get her husband's spear. But when she returned, her son was gone and the little creature had run off with a notably larger stomach. <laughs> That's kind of the story that they all tell the children. It's kind of like everyone has a little fun story to tell the kiddos. Even La Llorona, the, like you said, La Chupacabra, things like that. So is the moral of the story, don't sleep under a tree, you might get eaten? I guess. I mean, that's not a good moral. I think sleeping <laughs> on a tree sounds great. I don't know. It sounds itchy, but okay. There's <laughs> also the girl that hasn't never been camping, so here we go. So here's a description so that you have a better idea of what you're thinking about when you uh-huh. hear the story. These monsters are small, only reaching about four feet tall, mm-hmm. red-skinned, mm-hmm. and has a smallish mm. body with a very large pot belly, a very large neck and mouth, and very large head. I'm assuming spindly, kind of gangly arms and legs. A little bit, yeah. All right, so that's actually pretty close to what I pictured, except I didn't picture red. I pictured very dark greenish black, kind of like I would a chupacabra. So everything but the color, that's what I was picturing. The pot belly, too, like right there. I think there has to be a certain visual cue that I think you might initially get, especially when you hear someone jumping out of a tree. Yeah. You're not going to think of someone too large, I think. But yeah. Unless it's Winnie the Pooh. Unless Winnie the Pooh gets stuck on that tree again. <laughs> so they also have pitch black beady eyes similar to a frog. Even though it has a large mouth, it doesn't have any teeth. Mm-hmm. Which isn't a big deal because it's able to swallow its food in its entirety like a snake. Mm. Its mouth will unhinge, making it possible to swallow anything as large as a human adult. Although their preferred prey are children. The Yarmoyahu will usually attack from above as it waits patiently for someone to walk by and rest under a fig tree. Preventative measures would be to try to find a cave or some sort of rocky overhang while resting to ensure that nothing can sneak from above. I'd imagine that's just a smart idea, especially in Australia. I know we have like a really huge, what do you call it, like a distorted view of what Australia is. It's like big spiders and, and snakes and things like that, but... At the time, especially if you were in the foresty kind of bush area, you are going to kind of be worried a little more about snakes than you would about other things. Sure. So does it live in the trees? More or less, yeah. Okay, because I was like, is that just its hunting ground? Because if not, where does it live? I'm like, so 
the assumption is these are relatively full-bodied trees where seeing a creature in it yeah, is get, hard. They get big trees out there. No, I know, I know. But, been... I, but I, you know, I was initially picturing kind of like just a small, modest tree a kid was under. But <laughs> no, this has no. to be like a thick, heavy, you know, foliage tree where a four-foot creature can hide in. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. One of its predatory features are bladed sucker cups at the tip of their fingers and toes, similar looking to an octopus. These suckers are used to suck their victim's blood, like I mentioned, but not to kill them, Mm. just enough to weaken their prey to unconsciousness, allowing it to consume it whole without a struggle or any kind of fight. Sure. Soon after feeding, the Yamayahu will take a nap. When awoken, they'll regurgitate its prey, still alive. Usually they're unconscious, but on the very rare occasion, they'll be conscious. If you ever find yourself in this situation, it's very important to pretend to be unconscious so that the Yamayahu doesn't try to gobble you up again. So any of you out there who have watched the movie Anaconda, oh God. Uh, my favorite <laughs> terrible movie, there's a scene in which the Anaconda had eaten John Voight already. Of course. John Voight and his wonderful accent got consumed. That's my favorite part. And then the snake decides it wants to kill some other things, so it has to regurgitate <laughs> uh, John Voight to make room. And you see him get thrown up. And he lands on his knees and he looks right at, it was either at Ice Cube or Jennifer Lopez, mm-hmm. which is a weird sentence um, to say. <laughs> so John Voight looked at either Ice Cube or Jennifer Lopez and winked and then just collapsed on the ground. And that, that scene is stuck in my head because it was really gross and really stupid. Yeah. So yeah. now I'm just imagining they throw up and it's like, don't wink. Don't wink. Don't wink. Do it. Do the wink. That's really creepy. I don't know why every time you show me that movie, which I think it's only been twice, I seem to forget massive chunks of it. Am I looking at my phone or am I drunk? I don't know. It's either way. Or both. Or both. Okay, so like I said, if you're conscious, try to run away. Also, you'd probably be too weak to move very fast because of the blood loss. Once a Yamayahu falls back asleep, that's when you should try to escape. If by chance the Yamayahu wakes up and you're still too weak to run, luckily the Yamayahu is also slow and can't really run. It's often compared to walking or, I guess, running as fast as a cockatoo. So it's not. <laughs> I thought the comparison was so weird. I'm like, wow, I wonder if a cockatoo has, like, such a specific gait. Like, it's just, this is just me, you know, a cockatoo. And now everyone's like, yeah, that's totally it's a like cockatoo. It runs just like that's, a cockatoo. That's what it is. <laughs> I can only imagine the situation, too. Just, like, Im- like, pretend you're watching this horrifying scene as it is. But then you see, like, this really slow chase. And you're like... This is really sad. (laughs) (laughs) This doesn't happen often. This doesn't happen every day. The scary part isn't the slow pursuit, but rather being caught over and over again. The Yamayahu never really kills its prey. It will just swallow them whole and vomit them out multiple times. So why do this at all? Because each time the Yamayahu spits out a person, they have progressively become shorter, their skin gets a little smoother and redder, and all of their hair starts to fall out. Eventually. Wait, wait, the, the Yarmayahu that start happens to it, or its victim? Its victim. So it's making new Yarmayahu? Yep. Eventually, it turns them into a Yarmayahu. For what I was able to find, it seems that Yarmayahu don't reproduce themselves. So they don't, like, magically have babies or anything. Only turn others into themselves. Like a curse, I guess. That's kind of how I interpret it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what's the motive? Like, why bother turning humans into a Yamayahu? One interpretation states that the Yamayahu are controlled by the spirit of the wild fig tree. 
It's unclear what the fig tree benefits from having a Yaramayahu around, but in any case, if the Yaramayahu allows its prey to escape before they change, then the fig tree spirit will enter the Yaramayahu's head and mumble horrible noises, leaving it with intense silence and then stealing its soul. The Yaramayahu would then turn into fungus to live on the trees, which can only be seen at night when it glows. So I guess there's a really big consequence. Not sure well, why. And I'm wondering if the reason the Yaramayahu is around this old fig tree is to like keep little kids from taking all the figs. I don't know. That's a really good point. And like kind of a, a preservation, mm-hmm. like this is mutual symbiotic living thing. Mm-hmm. Well, except for the Yaramayahu, they, just, they didn't really have a choice. Well, but they get to suck blood, eat children and vomit up their kids. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to go into a little bit of a history now because I was very confused as to why this creature would exist. Like, what's the interpretation here? Mm-hmm. The story of the Yaramayahu is often told to children as a way to scare them from misbehaving and to frighten them from wandering into the forest. Okay. But the Yaramayahu is more than that. It's also, like, really tied into Australian indigenous cultural identity and their history. The Aboriginal communities categorize three different groups besides humans and animals. And the first is ancestral creators, which are, um, they inhabit what is known or like a land known as dream time, which exists at the beginning of time. They're literally the creators of the world, as well as religion, traditions, and other social constructs. And without the ancestral creators, nothing would exist. All right. So that's group one. That's group one. Or three, uh, other than humans and animals. Right. Okay. Right. And then the second is ghosts or human spirits. That one's pretty self-explanatory. It's the spirits of anything that was once living. And the third is spirit beings. They exist alongside humans in the here and now on our physical environment. And the Yaramayahu falls under a subcategory of that called spirit men or little men. So wait, what's the difference between, because you said ghosts or spirits, and then you said spirit beings. Yeah, so spirit beings are not human. They're not of So by ghosts and spirits, you mean formerly living, and these ones are not formerly living. This is just who they are. I don't know. They they live alongside of uh, what we would categorize as other animals, like a real snake or a frog or something. But a spirit being would be kind of like what you would describe a cryptid. Like, we don't really know. They might have other supernatural powers that are beyond our understanding. Sure. Like, especially when the Yaramayahu can talk to a spirit fig tree and or turn something else into a Yaramayahu, that doesn't track to any other creature that we know that is tangible. So anthropologist Philip A. Clark studied this area and learned that these human-like beings are most common in southeastern Australian Aboriginal folklore. Despite the commonalities, each community will have distinct characteristics and interpretations. Okay. So that's just one that I kind of gave you. For example, so there's a lot of variations. There kind of is. On, yeah. Yeah. So, like in West Australia, the Yaramayahu can look like an orangutan with hair covering most of its body, but would still have a notable red skin okay. to it. Other than the Yaramayahu, there are other types of spearmen roaming the land with often extreme skin colorations like yellow, green, white, and sometimes gray. Not so subtle, but that's actually a good thing sometimes for mm-hmm. a prey or something like that to kind of warn you. Like, listen, you don't want to eat me. I don't want to eat you. <laughs> Stay away. Most spirit men are crepuscular creatures, meaning they're most active at dusk and dawn. They usually are loners, but sometimes found in pairs. However, the Yahoo stands out as exhibiting different behavior from other spirit men, making them particularly difficult to avoid, basically, because... 
they do hunt alone, but they hunt during the day and it makes it really difficult for hunters and other groups of people to feel safe when they would be obviously most active during the day. Here's a really fun fact. Before the first fleet of British ships arrived on Australia's mainland in 1788, it was estimated that there were at least 500 indigenous groups, but possibly closer to 1,000. It's always difficult to uh, gauge the numbers when history is destroyed. Absolutely. Despite this, colonizers consider some of the artwork, particularly the animals that were recorded, to be real. So, like, for a hot second, no, no one really knew the wildlife on this you know, island. Yeah, unique island that had some of the weirdest looking Very animals. Very strange even, looking. Even by today's standards. Weird, oh, right. Like, yeah, yeah. Then. So they really believed that some of these spirit creatures, including the Yarama Yahoo, were real. I don't know. I think that's kind of cool to, to, uh, to imagine. Well, I mean, when, when all you're hearing about is these crazy creatures, like imagine a deer, but it like hops and it's only on two legs and it likes kicking things. Yeah. And it keeps a baby in like a pocket. And you're <laughs> just... And you're like, no, you wait did. a minute. You're like, hold on. And they're like, hold and then on. there's spiders. That oh, no. Are... And then they're buff. Like, they'll punch you. And you're like, yeah. hold on. <laughs> yeah. I think after you heard the stories about the real ones, when you, yeah. you do this one, you're like, huh. I mean, it's it's still weird. But I, I've, I've lost the and there's, surprise. There's also this clear language barrier, too. So the interpretations that you're trying to portray in a different language like even if you learn their language it's going to come off differently so it's just it's going to be very strange to describe it also makes me wonder since you know australia the british empire was using it kind of as a penal colony at first that's Mm -hmm. kind of like the famous thing that if these stories only helped like as a incentive to keep people from committing crimes like we'll send you to australia the land of demons and (laughs) red creatures that vomit you they should have had like someone from australia send telegrams or something to (laughs) england to like families with naughty children and saying sadly robert he was taken yet again by yaramayahu and then i don't know have a really rough his skin is redder today (laughs) he's got a pot belly now yep yeah he lost all his hair i think that would have been pretty i don't know effective i know i wouldn't want to commit any crimes no I mean, I don't want to commit crimes anyway, so I don't know if it actually would work because, you know. That's true. Who knows? So anthropologist Norman B. Tyndale had a theory regarding the Yaramayahu in the early 20th century. He believed that Yaramayahu's depiction in drawings were an interpretation of the oral history of the Pygmy people that lived in Australia over 30,000 years ago. I mean, I'm not saying it's a very nice interpretation, but it's a theory. Whatever explanation is used to either dismiss the Yaramoyahu or other spiritual creatures, it didn't stop people from reporting sightings to this day. Fortunately, nothing too serious, but some have claimed to witness a pot-bellied red creature roaming among the trees. <laughs> and that is the Yaramoyahu. Nice. Yeah. So that's just something else to keep in our mind when we go down to Australia. <laughs> just one more thing on the no. list. But see, the difference is most of the creatures that I've heard about or insects and snakes I've heard about in Australia, if we go there, I don't want to see them. But oh, then I don't there's either. things I do want to see. Like, I do want to see a kangaroo. I, I don't know how much I'd want to see one of these, but I'll keep my eye out because <laughs> how exciting would it be? Because I'd be like, hey, look, that's a mythical creature that doesn't exist. And I just saw it. Yeah, I'd be like, now no one's going to believe me. Of all the things <laughs> I could have seen in Australia, this is it. Might as well just start drinking. <laughs> I'm ahead of you. Well, Nice. I like that. That was yeah. good. So I've never even heard of that. That's kind of weird. It makes me wonder if any of our Australian listeners, mm. ha- if they've heard of this and if it's supposed to be, if it's it's kind of told in a really funny way or if it's told in like, oh, this is an old timey kind of thing. Like for us, the Chupacabra is, 
it's kind of funny because we know it doesn't exist and the idea yeah. of this little creature that like sucks the blood of goats. But we can also imagine if it were real being pretty creepy. And I'm wondering if this is that way or if it's just straight up into the ridiculous or. Yeah, or I don't know. I'm not really sure. It did seem like from the material that I was reading, like a lot of people know about this. It's kind of like we all know about La Llorona or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Chupacabra, like you said. But that's also regional to us in the United States. Because when I did the Boo Hag episode, I had no idea she existed. And my friend Lisa, who is from the South, she's like, what are you talking about? That's like, I've known this since I was a baby. Mm -hmm. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So I think maybe that could also be regional to them as well, depending on what part of Australia. Because that place is massive. Well, and when it comes to things relating towards the history and whatnot of Australia... Things relating to the Aboriginal people is sadly very minimal in yeah. what's being told. And I know that has to do with a lot of horrible stuff that have to do with how history is made. Yeah, but, of course. So I'm wondering, I'd, I'd like to actually hear what someone who is either Aboriginal or raised around a bunch of people who are Aboriginal mm-hmm. to see how they interpret this story as opposed to some guy in Melbourne who's just like, yeah. oh yeah, I heard about this. You know, we heard it when we were kids, real blah, blah, blah. It's just supposed to be funny. Or is it like kind of some of the Native American folklore that we hear here, like you know, the skinwalkers where I'm genuinely terrified of. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, you hear about the Wendigo. I know that's in different regions, but there are things that people, they're like, oh, I don't know if I believe in it, but I'm also low-key scared of it. Absolutely. So, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So uh, wait, wait, what was it called again? The Yaramayahu. Yaramayahu. Okay, because in my head, the reason I kept forgetting it is it just, when after you would say it, my head would just say Yanomami, which is an actual group oh, of people. Oh, the Yanomami. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we studied them in college. Brazilian and... Uh, near the, uh, in the a, rainforest. Oh, right, but it was on the border. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and we, we researched them in anthropology, but for some reason, because I wrote papers and stuff, every time you finish saying that, my head just went to Yanomami, and you know, it makes it easy to forget. I had to kind of, um, kind of do that too a little bit at the beginning i was like yama 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 yahoo no and so i was very scared i was gonna mess it up today but i didn't so i'm glad well i liked it that was good so we're gonna do a super quick break we'll come back for my story which is completely different than that (laughs) good all right we'll take a break okay i'm back still with my soda and vodka and chase has his water i think i'm ready so the story that i'm covering today is one that Online, a lot of people often relate it to one of my favorite stories, a story that we have covered on this podcast in the past called the Dyatlov Pass incident. Mm. This one has some similarities and some differences. You'll find out as we get into it. But I will just, as a quick warning, there is some gory body horror that I'm going to talk about. So if if you don't want to hear that or if someone in the car with you doesn't want to hear that, maybe <laughs> skip this story until later. But anyway, I'll get on with it. I hadn't heard of it until a recent Reddit post brought it to my attention. And as always, I expect to butcher the pronunciation, which is exclusively based on YouTube videos that other non-Russian speaking people Mm. pronounce. So I'm kind of just making the same mistake as them. It's fine. But today I'm going to talk about the Kamar Daban incident. And compared to many of the stories that we have covered on this podcast, this one is relatively recent. It takes place in 1993, when I was still playing with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I don't know what you were doing, but turtles were definitely my life at the time. And it also means it was after the fall of the Soviet Union, because the Dyatlov Pass incident was in the 50s. Yeah. And so this one is, you know, 40 years later. In the summer of 1993, seven people embarked on a hiking trip in Kamar Daban. The trip was organized and led by Lyudmila 
Korovina. There's so many Russian names in here, and I apologize. I, I'm so bad. Yeah, Lyudmila Korovina, a 41-year-old hiking instructor and master survivalist who was highly regarded amongst her colleagues. On this trip, she brought six of her students that most mm. sources claim were her best students. And I'm going to just give a list of who they were. There was Alexander Kryson, age 23, Tatiana Filipenko, age 24, Dennis Shvachkin, age 19, Valentina, nicknamed Valia Udochenko, age 17, Victoria Zalasova, age 16, and Tumur Bapanov, age 15. So that's... That's quite the range, yeah. Yeah, so they're ages 15 to 23. They're the instructor, she's 41. So got some young, got some Mm -hmm. decent age. So anyway, the group was enthusiastic and had been preparing for this trip for months. Weather predictions were incredibly favorable with uninterrupted sunny skies. They embarked on August 2nd, 1993, from near the village of Moreno in the north. There were multiple groups hiking in the region, and one of which was being led by Lyudmila's daughter, Natalia. These two groups were planning on meeting just three days later on August 5th. Mm. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary until August 4th, when unexpected rainstorms hit the area rather hard. Despite this, Natalia's group made it to the meeting point as planned on the 5th. However, Lyudmila's group never arrived. Natalia wasn't too worried and assumed that Ludmilla's group had been held up by rather bad weather. However, days would pass without a single word or sign from Ludmilla's group. Uh-oh. August 10th. Well, that's a lot days of days. later. <laughs> more than a week since the hiking trip began, several kayakers were going down a river at the base of the Kamar Daman mountain range. They noticed against the trees along the shore a young girl covered in blood staring at them. <gasps> it was Valentina Utochenko, Valia, the 17-year-old girl from Lyudmila's group. They came ashore and escorted the traumatized girl to the nearest police station. It took her quite some time before she was able to tell people what had happened. This is what she told them. Oh, my gosh. Keep in mind, many sources about this story are not direct translations, but rather several layers removed. I tried to get as many sources together to get the most information, but there are some slight differences, and, and so I'm just doing my best. In the first two days of the journey, they made good time and ascended... Retransliator Peak. However, the rainstorms that hit on the 4th slowed them down considerably, soaking their gear and weighing them down. Exhausted and frustrated, the group decided to set up camp. Now, some of the sources say that this was an unexpected choice considering that there was a fair amount of tree cover in the nearby vicinity, and they decided to make camp in a big, wide, open side Mm. of the mountain. Unprotected. The sources that mention it suggest that the group set up camp in open due to the group being so tired and that they really shouldn't have been there. Yeah. The next day, they were finally able to start a fire and prepare breakfast before setting out. After eating, the group continued their descent. Not long after they embarked, Alexander, who was leading up the rear of the group, began to scream in agony. Alarmed, the group approached Alexander only to find that foam was coming from his mouth and (gasps) blood was streaming out of his eyes and ears. Wait, what? Moments later, he collapsed and began convulsing violently. Shortly after, he stopped moving completely. Lyudmila, who considered Alexander to be like a son to her, desperately began trying to revive Alexander. His eyes were bulging and lifeless, and Lyudmila said she couldn't find a pulse and told the rest of the group to hurry down the mountain and find help immediately. The remaining five began to rush down the mountain in a state of panic looking for help, but they didn't get far before they heard Lyudmila herself screaming in pain and asked for help. The group ran back up to see what was happening, and they found that Lyudmila herself was experiencing the same horrific effects, foaming, bleeding, and convulsions. 
Moments later, after reaching their instructor, things continued to descend into chaos. Mm. Tatiana began clasping at her throat as if she were unable to breathe, only to then rush to a nearby rock and smash her head against it until it knocked her unconscious. Shortly after, Victoria and Timur began showing symptoms. In addition to expelling blood from their mouths and gasping at their throats, they began tearing their clothes off. Dennis hid behind a large boulder and crawled into his sleeping bag, but eventually succumbed to the ill effects as well. The last one standing was Valya, who went to her friends in hopes of helping them. None of them were moving. She dragged the further of the bodies back into one area to kind of keep them together. Oh, okay. And then she went down a ways to the tree line and wrapped herself in a sleeping bag, tormented by what had happened. In the morning, she returned up the mountain to the group to see if any of them had recovered or survived. The bodies were as she left them. She closed their eyes and then continued down the mountain until she found power lines, which she followed until she came to the river. She followed the river, hoping someone would find her, and eventually, on the 10th, many days later, Mm -hmm. the kayakers did just that. A search party wasn't dispatched until August 24th, two weeks later, and it took two days until the hikers' bodies were found. No external injuries were found on the bodies, and several of the victims were found without outerwear on them. So, what happened? Well, this is where things get murky. (laughs) Autopsies were indeed performed on all of the bodies, and all of the bodies showed evidence of bruised lungs. Ludmilla's cause of death was determined to be a heart attack. And for the other five victims, the cause of death was determined to be hypothermia and protein deficiency being a contributing factor. Weird. Now, if you're like me, your response is, what the fuck? Five of them froze to death in the middle of summer? So, it was, and it wasn't raining when it happened. True. Yeah. So let's just look at what we do know. It was just below 30 degrees Celsius, according to Vladimir Zarov, a researcher and experienced hiker who retraced their route five years later. That's around 86-ish degrees Fahrenheit. Mm. But the torrential rainstorm apparently also brought with it snow oh. in the middle of summer. So, you know, Russia. You know, I guess. <laughs> so apparently it was a hot summer week that had freezing storm that brought rain and snow. So if we just accept that this is what happened to the weather and it indeed got cold enough for hypothermia to set, it still leaves a lot of questions. Hypothermia can cause issues with the lungs, but I'm not sure if bruising is a common one. I'm not a doctor. Mm -hmm. But pneumonia, edema, sure. And it should also be noted that Ludmilla allegedly died of a heart attack and still had bruised lungs as well. She did not die from hypothermia, suggesting that the lung damage occurred before the onset of hypothermia could have happened. Yeah. And it, if we step away from the hypothermia altogether, Ludmilla having a heart attack is very weird. She was a healthy and fit woman in her 40s. And yes, I know freak accidents can happen, but this happened at the same time that five other people died. That's what makes it weird. So it's weird. Yeah. It, you're like, no, she didn't just have a freak heart attack. Like, something happened. So we can assume... Whatever happened to all of them is what probably caused her to have a heart attack. So what did happen? Well, there really isn't a universally accepted answer. This is considered a massive mystery. But there are some leading theories. And, I, and I'm really <laughs> curious after I, after I tell them to you what you I think I can only imagine because we are to discussing this on this podcast, so I'm very <laughs> excited. One that seems particularly intriguing is that the hikers were exposed to a nerve toxin in the environment. This has been suggested because it explains virtually every symptom described in the testimony, including the foaming mouse, bleeding from the eyes, the heart attack, as well as the bruised lungs. If they were severely incapacitated from the agent, appearing dead but not quite dead, it would make sense that they would die as a result of the exposure overnight in the cold temperatures. Mm. 
It might also explain how all of them had a protein deficiency since poisonous toxins result in rapid chemical changes in the body. Yeah. Sometimes that's how they can tell what you're poisoned with is, you know, weird things like that. But how would they have been exposed? The nearby lake Baikal is known to have been a site where toxic materials have been dumped for many years during the Soviet Ooh, control. Sure. Contaminants could have easily reached the hikers either through streams or even through the rainfall. Another source claims that this is when the infamous Novichok nerve agent chemical weapon had been developed by Russia, which they were developing in the 70s all the way up until 1993 when this happened. And this was a very scary nerve agent. It was being designed so that it couldn't be detected and so that it could be used as a weapon. It was very dangerous. And there's also people, it's hard to find, I mean, we're talking about secret government things, but there are people who claim that around the area is where they would have done testing of this chemical. Okay, so it is known that this is kind of a well, they, testing ground? So this the region of Russia where this happened is right above Mongolia. It's in the Siberian area, so okay. it's, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. There are uh, villages, but compared to Western Russia where all the big concentrate, like this is kind of the middle of nowhere. This is where they were going to test so it's all it's not like stuff. a well-known area, but it's like it's not out of the realm that they would do it somewhere in that area. So this was a really loved tourist area to go hiking. Mm. People really liked it. Yeah, I actually had missed this paragraph earlier. So Kamardaban is a mountain range in Siberia that is located in the southern region of Russia just above central Mongolia. According to what I read online, this area is apparently a popular hiking spot and is regularly frequented by tourists. It should also be noted that Kamar Daban is also known as a safe hiking location mm. and that it doesn't have any major natural dangers, be they geological, wildlife, etc. But I see. If you if you look at a big enough scale, like they said, the lake nearby was known to have toxic waste dumped in it. You go to remote areas when you're doing this. And of course, yeah. The Soviet government wasn't famous for caring much about the welfare of its citizens. Yeah, yeah. So, you know. And and so the idea is if it was this any nerve agent, whether it was the Novichok or something else, the idea was if it had been in the area and you have this horrible, crazy rainstorm that kind of messes up the landscape bit and then you're treading through it, they could have walked through an area and treaded up some soil that had been messed up from the rain and just exposed themselves Absolutely. to it. And that's why it would happened rather rapidly in that area. And Valia would have just been lucky because maybe with the wind going through, she just didn't get enough exposure to it for it to cause a huge issue with her. Yeah. And everyone else got it. And cause you notice how the first guy had it. And then when the hiking instructor went there, then she started having almost like he was a centralized area like he oh, had it. Oh, I see. Yeah. Picked up some sort of nerve toxin. And so as everyone got close, they just collapsed and started having Maybe in these the chaos, well. like you said, like your feet kicking up, maybe something that's in, that's in it, like the dust, and yeah. then they inhaled it. And there, yeah, there was a heavy rainstorm that they talked about that was unexpected. And they were on a big exposed mountainside. So yeah. we have no idea what was happening there. If this were the case, it would suggest government interference. And perhaps these hikers didn't actually die of hypothermia. It could have been a cover up. All governments are guilty of this. Russia is no exception. We need to accept the possibility that the autopsy results that were released are not accurate. Like, that's not actually what happened. But there is another interesting theory. The site paranormalcatalog.net suggests the possibility of the hikers ingesting toxic mushrooms. Remember, this all happened shortly after they ate breakfast together that morning. They all apparently ate together, and according to Valia, the one survivor, they had all eaten well on that trip, and they ate the same thing. Okay. Now, mushrooms are infamously dangerous to forage for, and their hiking instructor, she was known to be really big on foraging. She That was something that oh, she okay. loved to do. 
The difference between a safe and poisonous mushroom can often be so small that even a skilled forager might miss it. Like it's it's really dangerous. You usually want to keep a book with you and double check things because you can have two mushrooms that look identical and some small thing that you, me, and everyone Didn't else wouldn't miss it. Like that's the difference between something that kills you and something that's fine. <laughs> so if they had gotten some mushrooms and they consumed toxic mushrooms together, they may all have experienced this horrible body effects to them, leaving them comatose long enough to die of hypothermia. And Valia's recollection of the event could have been the result of hallucinations about the event. According to the site, psilocybin, we all know that, has a documented effect of giving people hallucinations of crying blood. That, I think, is a bit of a stretch. Okay. I mean, I don't really know much about that in a personal aspect or anything, and obviously I've never read anything about it, but... If that's true, maybe that explains her interpretation of what she saw. Yeah, and this stuff, yeah. So, like, everyone else was just willing to kill themselves because of it? Yeah, well, I think think what they're trying to imply is that everyone was having a reaction and most people were dying of it, Mm -hmm. and that maybe she consumed less of it, and so she just had psychological effects. And like we said, how many days did it take her to be found that she might have just been wandering around in kind of a state of... Of confused yeah, mental she didn't fog. even realize. Yeah. And that everyone else were sick enough that they did die of hypothermia. I mean, I do think it's important that we note the hypothermia diagnosis is based on an autopsy that we don't know if we can verify is accurate. Yeah. I don't really have any alternate explanations. I do lean towards the idea that the hikers were exposed to some sort of toxin or poison. And the autopsies aren't as problematic as some people seem to suggest. Like I like, like I said, I mean, let's say there was evidence of nerve toxins. They're like, okay, Mm. the government has been testing these things here. We can't put this out there. We have to hide it. This is a freak accident. We're just going to say they died of hypothermia or something like that. I mean, we don't even know where these autopsies were performed. I mean, this is a small kind of remote area of of Russia, so we don't know if the autopsies, they had all the equipment to do all the testing to test for these different kinds of nerve effects, whether or not the doctor had experience. If it wasn't like a very big facility where they would have limited unlimited resources or especially at the time, I guess, but to test certain poisons yeah. and whatnot. Like you really need a lot of tools, a lot of, a lot of things to use to, to perform that or like a lab to send exactly. uh, tissue samples and everything. So I don't know. like how, how many, how many people performing autopsies in just normal cities have experience with dealing with people who were exposed to nerve toxins. And now I know that the effects on the human body would give certain, evidence that they could look it up in a book and be like, yes, these are evidence of nerve toxins. Mm-hmm. But one of the suggestions what that is that it was this exotic nerve toxin that had been developed during this time with the entire purpose to being not detectable. So I think the idea that it was a weird nerve toxin that would have had atypical effects on the body would make it a really weird thing to diagnose, especially if you're a small coroner's office in a small town that just doesn't yeah. have exposures. There's enough factors here where I'm like, I don't know how important the autopsy is. However, they did say bruised lungs. And I think that's something anyone can look at the lungs and be like, these are bruised. And <laughs> we have this girl who's talking about them foaming at the mouth, grasping at their necks. Like they couldn't breathe. Yeah. yeah. I, I think something bad happened. I think something bad, very bad happened. And I'm 100% sure that that autopsy report, whether or not the coroner like was trying yeah. to do that poorly. I mean, he didn't do anything wrong probably, but uh, he just didn't have the resources. He's like, mm-hmm. from what I know and from the resource that I have, this is all I can tell you. It, and yeah. I have a theory, but that's all I have. It's problematic. But, but the reason people relate this to the Dyatlov Pass incident is it had to do with a bunch of hikers 
who in one concentrated area all died rather rapidly and we don't have a good explanation why. We have a lot of theories that cover a lot of bases, but we don't have anything to prove it and they were in kind of remote areas and all of them can just be lumped into this category of reasons I don't want to go hiking in Russia. Yeah. <laughs> is that just, is that number one now? Yeah, that's that's a new category yeah. of horror stories for me is reasons not to hike in Russia. Well, don't worry. We never go hiking. So I think we're safe. I think we're safe. So that was my story. Oh my God. That was horrifying. Uh-huh. That poor woman, Valia. I mean, like, how do you even interpret this? How do you go to therapy for this? Because half mm-hmm. the things either... People are telling you like it was a hallucination or or it may have been real. Either way, I can't even imagine the trauma. Yeah. And these are people that she obviously cared for on some level. They were yeah. friends and her instructor was probably like And she was pretty young. She was she was around the middle. I think she was still in her teens. She was like nineteen or something. Um she was seventeen. Seventeen. She's one year Aww. she's less than a year older than our our niece. Yeah. You know, and I couldn't imagine handling seeing this stuff right now as me, me now in my late 30s i know exactly how hard that stuff was for me at that age because it was just crazy and she was alone at that point i mean way to go i mean i know that she might have been like an experienced hiker she might have done that path before but it could also explain why it took her so long to get to somewhere and she had to follow yeah. power lines yeah. because she might have gotten lost i can't think straight when I'm almost late to work. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, I can't I, imagine a stressful situation. But that's also like, something that only takes you, like, 30 minutes of your life. This was a week. Uh, in a week, eh, she's going to figure things out. Yeah, And yeah. she did the right thing. Power lines fall on, river fall on. That's exactly what I would do. No, no, no. Find I guess those, I those meant, things. like, initially, it would be easy oh, sure. for her to get lost oh, while she's yeah. thinking about it. Absolutely. Or unable to think about it. Especially if she didn't want to rummage through all of her, uh, like, all of her friend's stuff. You know? Yeah. And who knows? Maybe she did. That would have killed her. And I, I think if, if we're talking about this being like a nerve agent, I think the rainstorm was a massive contributing factor. Whatever happened, that was... Because without yeah. it, not only would they probably not have camped there and been in that specific area, but it may not have disrupted the landscape to a point where things could have been dangerous. I mean, there were other theories as well. There was theories about it being radiation poisoning, but Mm. those were pretty much universally debunked because it just didn't match what happened to them. There's always going to be the person who says aliens came, but (laughs) I'd like to point out the traumatized one woman who survived said nothing about aliens. So that would either mean that the conspiracy theory is saying, well, they wiped her brain or there weren't aliens. Well, they couldn't have wiped her brain. What they would have done is, no, no, no. I don't want her to think it's aliens. Let's make her think it was her friends bleeding out of their eyes instead. Right, right. You know, do you think they would replace it with just like either nothing, erase her memory, or just be like, yeah, we were hiking and I, and then they were dead, you know, whatever. <laughs> I just woke up and I have no idea. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm not thinking any of that stuff. But anyway, horrifying story, but also incredibly terrifying. <sighs> yeah. So uh, for those of one. you guys that love hiking out there, I just want to ask why? <laughs> No, I'm kidding. I love a good hike. Uh, I love a yeah. good hike. Yeah, Just be. not in Russia. Wow. But also, real quick, before we go, I wanted to mention that I have been paying attention to all this craziness happening in the UFO world. I know I haven't done a UFO thing in a while. I've had people asking me, and I want to assure you I'm not sleeping on it. I am, of course, talking <laughs> about the jellyfish UAP. I am still looking oh. into it. And if I find anything worth talking about, I'll discuss it on a future episode. It, this came out in a documentary that's on Tubi for free that 
the reason I haven't watched it yet is the documentary is produced by TMZ, which is like the worst <laughs> company ever. But I am curious to see it. So if I can get around to watching it, maybe I'll talk about it on a future episode. But I am looking at it. I just don't have anything to say just yet, in case you're wondering. Yeah, I saw images or I guess a video of it. It's super scary. Like, what is happening? It's pretty weird. Even when I talk about it, my corridor crew people tried to debunk it. And that's interesting. And I want to talk about that. I don't think they did a good job on this one. They did a great job on all the others. But we'll talk about that at a later date. But yeah, I think that brings our episode to a close. Yep, I think that's it. If this is your first episode with us, welcome, and I hope you had as much fun as we did. If this isn't your first episode, thanks for coming back and eating us up like the Yarama Yahoo. <laughs> Remember, you can always email us at hotwpodcast at gmail.com or contact us through other social media platforms with story suggestions or your own spooky experience. We would love to hear more personal scary stories. We had a bunch of them, but some of them we just can't use in our episode. So if you guys have any others that you'd really like, we'd love to have them. We could even record you guys telling us the story if you're interested. So you just let us know. Yeah, I think we can do that. And lastly, as we always say, if you find yourself having a work week hangover or I drank too much because our good friends were in town kind of hangover, well, don't worry, because the best cure for a hangover is fear. Bye.